Mark chapter 6. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. Uh, Mark chapter 6. Last night, it was about midnight, and I was putting up on some final touches on the sermon, and my oldest son walked in uh, and decided it was time to chat. And uh, he asked me, he said, Dad, why, why, do you always, uh, why, why are you always working so late on Saturdays before you preach? And uh, I thought I had a good one-liner for him, so I just told him, I said, well, son, uh, I don't like serving up stale bread. I like serving up, you know, fresh bread uh, to God's people. And he smiled, and he looked back, and he said, well, I'm going to use that principle next time I have a school project, uh, <laughs> which I don't think that's what I intended to happen, but it, it went there, so... Mark chapter 6, I hope you have a copy of God's Word and uh, with you, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, you don't have one, we would be honored to give you uh, a, a copy of God's perfect Word. We would love to do that, and so if you don't have a Bible, just see us at the Connect table at the end of this worship gathering, and we will give you that as a gift. You know, this, is, this has been a difficult week in the world as war has broken out in Europe for the first time in decades. And uh, no doubt, we've all been moved as we've read the news and seen images and heard just stories of the horror of war. Uh, But the difficulty has been particularly close to some in our church family who have loved ones in Ukraine. For brothers and sisters like Andre and Julia, it's been a week of sleepless nights, nonstop phone conversations with family inside Ukraine and a lot of fear and anger and worry and uh, some of you might even be in the same situation as our brother and sisters are and you know Andre and Julia shared that they actually had family members living in Ukraine and shared that there were some Russian Marines that had unloaded in literally in the family's backyard and placed mines all over the place presenting preventing them from fleeing And uh, I I heard last night that their family was able to get out and get safety. Thank God for that. But that's not the case for many people today. It's not the case for a lot of people. And it is a very scary set of events that are happening right now as we're gathered in this place. And so um, there's people hiding in underground metros. There's no food. There's no water. Julia shared that there's babies being born, there's not adequate hospital care. This is, this is absolutely an awful situation. And so what I want to do is just stop right now and let's just pray. Let's pray for our brother and sister in Christ, Andre and Julia, for others in our church family who this is not just a distant news story, but this is very personal as family and loved ones are in harm's way. And let's pray for the people of Ukraine. Uh, let's pay, pray for the people who are Uh, in harm's way today. So, Heavenly Father, we do, even as we turn our attention to your word, we want to pause and pray on behalf of our precious brother and sister, Andre and Julia, for their precious children and for their family that right now is in a war-torn country of Ukraine. And we also want to pray for countless others who are going through this horrible situation. God, would you please be their peace that surpasses understanding? Would you be near to them in their fear and in their pain? And would you remind them that you have an eternal love for them in Christ Jesus? That 10,000 years from now will not run dry. 
God, we pray that Russia will relent of their desire to control Ukraine and that both the Ukrainian and Russian people will be able to live in peace. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are right now in Ukraine, who are anxious about this war. We pray for preserving grace for the church there of the Lord Jesus Christ, that in the ashes of war, the gospel would brilliantly shine forth to many people. And somehow, God, in your infinite wisdom, you would use this crisis to bring about good from those who meant it for evil. You're that kind of God, and we ask you to do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. These are difficult days, uncertain days, but I do believe that they are days that God is using in unique and powerful ways. I read one pastor in Ukraine who decided to stay and not flee. He decided to stay so he could serve the people, and this is what he said. He said, if the church is not relevant at a time of crisis, then it's not relevant in a time of peace. That's a pretty powerful statement from a from a pastor who's, who's saying, hey, listen, this, this message, what we're doing, how we're serving people in the name of, of Jesus, how we're proclaiming the gospel, if it's not uh, relevant in time of crisis, then there's no way it's relevant in time of peace. And I was thinking about that this week and thinking about the relevance of Pastor David's sermon last Sunday uh, from Mark chapter 4, where David, uh, he showed us from the parables uh, of Jesus that God is establishing his kingdom. Now, we say things like that in the church and just fly right through it. But do you understand, in light of all that's happening in the world today, above all of that, God himself is establishing his kingdom through the redemptive rule and reign of Jesus. Through the redemptive rule and reign of Jesus. Now, I, I want you to see this, church. I want you to be able to connect the dots. Even as world leaders are jockeying and seeking to expand their rule and reign, above all, Above it all, God is establishing his kingdom, his rule and reign through the lives of those who will trust him and follow King Jesus. So as each person lays down their rebellious arms against this God on high and follows Jesus, the kingdom of God is going forward, is being established. Now, that was one week ago from today. And I don't want to re-preach that sermon, but I fear too often we disconnect what Sunday's all about with the rest of the week. And most of us have seen a, a, a sharp increase in the amount of time we've been paying attention to the news this week. Most of us have, have increased the number of hours that we've been paying attention to what's going on. And I've been watching and praying, and to be honest with you, have been worrying and even questioning, frustrated at times. But yesterday, as I was preparing for this sermon, and thinking about last week's sermon, God reminded me of the most important truth in all of this, that even in the midst of a broken, full of sin and suffering world, that God is establishing his kingdom, that God is doing this. He's redeeming and restoring through the gracious rule and reign of King Jesus in our lives and in lives all across the globe today. That's a powerful statement. And that is what the gospel of Mark is about. That's what we desperately need to see today. We desperately need to, 
to believe it, to trust in it, no matter what we face in the world this coming week. So last week's sermon, this week's sermon, in fact, the whole gospel of Mark is showing, is revealing in powerful ways, even as historic events unfold right before our eyes, God is doing something even greater. And he's doing something that will last so much longer. He's redeeming and restoring. He's establishing his kingdom. And his kingdom, listen, doesn't look like any other kingdom. And the king of this kingdom doesn't resemble any other king. You see, his kingdom is good news for weak and weary sinners who humble themselves and turn to King Jesus. And this is good news. His kingdom is good news for those who right now are going through unimaginable suffering. But make no mistake about it. This is really bad news for tyrannical leaders as well as every other person on this planet who is pridefully seeking to establish their own kingdom. And so church, I don't, I don't want you to, to miss connecting the dots here. God's kingdom, the redemptive rule and reign of God in Jesus is at hand. And we all have to respond to that. Every one of us has to respond to that. And today, I want to show you in Mark chapter 6 that there are two responses to Jesus. Two responses to King Jesus. And I also want to show you two realities in light of that. Response number one, I'm going to go ahead and give it to you. Response number one, you can reject Jesus as your king. You can reject him as your king. You can look at him, you can size him up, you can consider all of the facts, and you can reject him. Response number two, you can submit to him as your king. You can submit to him as your king. Now, before you say, well, that was a great sermon, go ahead and close it down in prayer. Let's get going. We've already made my, my response, and we're going to move on. Let me just ask you to hang in there just for a few moments because you might see something that helps clarify your response. You might see something in Mark chapter 6 that actually challenges your current response to King Jesus. So Mark chapter 6 is... It's the concluding text in the first section of Mark's gospel. The section began with an introduction and stated purpose of the book. And that was to declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, for those of us who swam in the waters of Christianity, that's not a massive statement to us. That's become very familiar to us. But this is, this is a very bold statement. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It goes on and shows that, that Jesus, his coming was not disconnected, but in fact, it was impressively woven into to Old Testament prophecies. And as, as things began to unfold in, God, in, in, in uh, the Gospel of Mark, we saw Jesus preaching and calling his disciples. And we see that people were amazed by him. In chapter 2, he heals a paralyzed man, like somebody brought in on a cot, like he can't even walk. And he gets up, picks up his cot, and walks away because Jesus heals him. And everybody's amazed. Are you kidding me? Who is this? In, in chapter 3, he performs more miracles. And on the surface, people are very interested. They're very intrigued. But when he started to teach about who God was, when he started to teach what it meant to be a part of his kingdom, when he started to teach, the people really began to struggle with Jesus. In fact, we read that his family even tried to seize him. It was, a, it, was a, it was an intervention from his family that said, 
uh, and I quote, he is out of his mind. And then in chapter 4, he teaches in parables about the kingdom, which we've heard the past two weeks from Pastor Mike and Pastor David. We see what the kingdom of God is like. We see how important it is. We see how it's being established. And and so today, we're going to skip over the remaining part of Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 5, not because it's unimportant, but because as a church, we walked through in depth those passages of Scripture right when the pandemic hit uh, in 2020. So I would commend the series of sermons uh, going through Mark chapter 4 and 5. You can find those on mclanebible.org. But just to remind you, in those chapters, Jesus displays staggering authority as king over nature. He looks at nature and speaks, and it obeys him immediately. He shows staggering authority as king over the demonic realm. I mean, stunning. There's no arguing when Jesus speaks. It was, yes, sir, and I'm going to do this. Staggering authority. He showed staggering authority over sickness, even over death, even over death. And we pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 6, and the very first phrase from the word of God today is, He, Jesus, went out from there and came to his hometown. Now, what's happening is, is Mark is connecting what is about to happen with what has previously happened in the first five chapters of Mark. It says, He went out from there. Now, where is there? There is Capernaum. That's where Jesus has been, and he has stunned the crowds by performing miracles. And it says he came to his hometown. Jesus comes back home. He comes to the place where he grew up. It should have been a famous homecoming, right? All the things that he's accomplished, certainly they're going to roll out the red carpet. should be a big homecoming for him, but it didn't turn out that way. And the scene actually takes place in his hometown of Nazareth. Now, this is a small, insignificant town of about 500 people. How many of you have either born in a small town or you lived in a small town at some point in time in your life? Just raise a hand. So you know what's about to happen here, okay? You already, you're feeling it. Like, this is going to be really interesting, okay? This small town where you cannot walk into the store and buy a gallon of milk without it taking 45 minutes because you run into everybody, okay? It's a small town that, like, you can't see anybody and, and realize you know everything about them and they know everything about you. This is a little bit awkward right now. This is the kind of town that, that Jesus grew up in, a small uh, uh, Nazareth, a town of about 500 people. And it, it didn't honestly have a great reputation either. In John chapter 1, Philip comes to tell his friend Nathaniel that he's found the Christ. He's found the one that they had been looking for, and he names him. He says his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel reply? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, I'm not sure you got the right guy there, you know? So Jesus returns to his hometowns, and his disciples followed him. That's what Mark chapter 6, the disciples followed him. Now, that's interesting. We need to slow down. Something is happening here that his disciples need to see to prepare them for what is to come. And as followers of Jesus in this room today, is something we need to see to prepare us for a life of following Jesus. There's a lesson to be learned here, and the lesson is rejection. The lesson is rejection. Now, most agree that this would be the second recorded 
uh, in his last visit to his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, Jesus' previous homecoming was recorded in Luke chapter 4, and frankly, it didn't go well, okay? He went in, to, and he, he, he began to teach. People were immediately impressed, but then they eventually turned on him and actually attempted to murder him. And uh, in, in spite of that treatment, Jesus returns, and this time he brings his disciples with him. He needs them to learn something that's going to be very important for their following him. And it says in our text, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, this was customary practice, that a rabbi would come in and wait to the Sabbath and then go to the synagogue and teach from there. He did the conventional thing as to not give unnecessary offense. We're going to come back to that later on. And it says this, and many who heard him were astonished. They were astonished. Jesus stands up to preach and blows the place down. It is amazing. And everywhere Jesus goes, you need to see that initially people are amazed at Jesus. The initial reaction, the knee-jerk reaction is amazement. They were, they were struck by what they had heard from him. They were struck by what they heard he had done. And in this small town of Nazareth, he, he was the carpenter. Okay? He was the local boy. He was, he was the guy they grew up with. And sure, he now had some disciples. But if you learn more about those disciples, you see that's not even an impressive bunch themselves. It's like a ragtag group that like, it, it, it even kind of draws a little bit of suspicion. Like, what kind of rabbi is he if these are the guys that are following him, you know? And this is, this is happening, but in the midst of this, um, everything they see and everything they know about Jesus is beginning to collide because everything has suggested that Jesus is just ordinary. He's Jesus. We, we, saw, him raise, we saw him rise up. We saw him in his youth. We saw him develop as a carpenter. We see these things and but they were amazed and amazed around two specific qualities. And I want you to see this. They were amazed at his wisdom, and they were amazed at his mighty works. They started just with a flurry of questions and says, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They're sitting back, the local townsmen. They're, okay, wow, I'm impressed. He, Jesus came back. He's got some things going. We didn't see it coming. You know, there's a few hiccups growing, but, you know, hey, he's doing some things, and we're really impressed. And, and it, you know, what is so interesting is it's easy to be amazed at Jesus when you only take part of Jesus. Is it not? You, you, when you're from afar away or you only look at a portion of Jesus, you can be amazed. But it's actually when you get closer and you take all of Jesus that he offends every single one of us. He offends every single one of us. So they're initially amazed, but that attitude starts changing to suspicion. And that begins to grow even into, it seems like some annoyance as they begin to question Jesus. And, and that just gives full, uh, that gives way to full-blown offense and rejection. In verse 3 it says, is this not the carpenter? Is this not the carpenter? Like, we know this guy. We saw him grow up. We know his work. Are you starting to hear the contempt rise up in their questions? Is this, is this not the son of Mary? Now, now, that was more than likely a cheap shot, okay? 
you, you need to know that's more than likely a cheap shot. Maybe not, but most people would say, hey, that's probably a cheap shot because sons in this day were always identified with their fathers, not their mothers, even when their fathers were dead. So you can hear the contempt as they are calling him an illegitimate son. They're like, are you serious? This guy, the Messiah, the son of God, he doesn't even know who his dad is. Like, I'm not sure. Like, are you serious? It goes on to say, is not this the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Or are not his sisters here with us? Now, side note, can you imagine how hurtful this was for Jesus? Now, most of us who have swam in Christian circles are real comfortable with Jesus being fully God. I would say we're less comfortable with him being fully man. And, and Jesus hears these criticisms. He hears these questions. Can you think about how, how badly that hurt him? These people knew him. These people saw him raise up to be a man. They, they, they were close. They had proximity. And they're sitting there saying, we saw him as a boy. We seen him mature into a man. How could this be the son of God? And the phrase after that, it says, and they took a at him. They took offense. They were initially astonished, but ultimately they were offended at Jesus. Now the word for offense comes from the original word scandalon. And I'm sure you could probably figure out what we have, what word in our language is derived from that word. We get our word scandalized from this word. They were scandalized by Jesus. Another way to say it is they, it, it, this word means to cause to stumble. It, it's more than just a disagreement. It's more than just agreement. There's a feeling of hostility. There's a viscerally rejection of someone. This is what's going on because he's, he offends their sensibilities. They can't deny his works. They can't deny that he's full of wisdom, but it's his identity that they can't handle. And despite overwhelming evidence, they will not believe he is the Christ, the Son of God. They can't receive him because he is offensive to them. They reject him as king. It goes on and says, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. The climax of the story, the pinnacle of their questioning Jesus responds with a saying he made famous. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. He's going to make that statement several times, but it's similar to a statement that we're familiar with. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. These people were very familiar with Jesus. They knew him, but they could not accept him as king. And it goes on, it says, and he couldn't do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Have you ever thought about what amazes Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? What amazes the Son of God who created the universe with the spoken word? Like, what can amaze him? Well, the Gospels actually tell us one thing that amazes him one, thing, one time he was amazed in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 8, he was amazed at the faith of the Gentile Roman soldier, the centurion. Some of you know this story. He, 
he, his servant was sick, and he went to Jesus, and he pleaded with him to heal him. And he said, you can just speak a word, and this servant will be healed. All you have to do is speak a word. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I say, with no one in Israel, I have found such faith. Is it not remarkable that childlike faith in King Jesus amazes him? But here in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. At their unbelief. He's astounded by his hometown's lack of faith. It says he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, how terrifying is that? How terrifying is it to consider that you can amaze God at your unbelief? These people had access they had proximity. They had opportunities. They saw him raised up in their own hometown. And yet, even after enjoying every one of those privileges, they rejected him. That's amazing unbelief. And I know a few people like that who've listened and learned. They've seen lives changed and still have amazing unbelief. Amazing unbelief. There might be even some of you here today that find yourself in that category. You've seen the power of God in other people's lives. You've seen your spouse come to faith in Christ. You've seen how your spouse's life has been changed. Maybe a student here today. You've seen salvation in your friend's life. You've seen salvation be poured out in your family's life. There's clearly a difference. There's transformation that has occurred by the power of Jesus. Or maybe even you come here regularly on worship, uh, to worship on Sunday. You've seen it. You've sung it. You've sat under the preaching, but you do not believe. You still reject Jesus. You just blow it off. You dismiss it. You can rationalize it. And here is why amazing unbelief is terrifying. The unbelief withholds Jesus' healing power and grace from flooding into your life. That's terrifying. That you could sit there today with unbelief in your heart, and in fact, that withholds the king of glory's grace and healing power flowing into your life. That's how terrifying amazing unbelief is. Now, before you start walking out, because you hear me saying that unbelief hinders the power of God, let me explain just a little bit. How could the omnipotent Son of God be limited by unbelief in Nazareth? How could the all-powerful Son of God be limited in your life? That just doesn't make sense. And this is what one person I read this week said it so well. He said, Jesus could not do miracles because he would not in the face of blatant unbelief. He could not because he would not in the face of blatant unbelief. The hardness of their heart in the rejection of Jesus prevented them from experiencing the benefits of his kingly rule in their life. Their unbelief deprived them of the gracious benefits of God's reign in their life. The disciples had to have been sitting there stunned. Would you agree with that? I mean, those guys are sitting there on the side being like, oh my goodness, what is happening? They knew what Jesus could do. They've seen it. They'd already seen things that had left them breathless. 
amazed. And here they are, here they are looking at Jesus. And Jesus is showing them, providing them an opportunity to see that he will, in fact, be rejected as king. Despite the overwhelming evidence, Jesus would still be rejected as king. And that is a response. One of the two responses to Jesus is to look at him, to see him for who he is and what he's done, and reject him. To walk away. Many have and many will. In the face of such powerful truths, verified historical realities, breathtaking pictures of, of Jesus being revealed in Scripture, you can look at him and you can reject him. And it will be amazing when you do that. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, all that we call human history Money and poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make them happy. There's been a lot of that list in the world. And you can join in on that list and you can reject Jesus. You can reject him. But can I tell you something? I'm in a room full of people who got up out of bed this morning and came to worship. And I don't believe the prevailing temptation for most of us is just to reject Jesus outright. I think the prevailing temptation for us is to remake Jesus to look like something we would prefer. And can I tell you something? That's rejecting Jesus. You can remake, remake him. Remake him into something that works better for your life. But in the end, when you remake Jesus, you are refusing to submit your life to Jesus. To remake Jesus, to look like a Jesus you want, is in fact ending up with a false Jesus. And please hear me when I say this. Remaking Jesus will never do for you what you desperately need done in your life which is you need a king that will redeem you and graciously rule and reign over your life. So response number one, you can reject him as your king. Response number two, you can submit to him as your king. And here is what is so surprising, and this should wow us every time we gather in this room. This king of the kingdom of God that we're talking about welcomes weak and weary sinners. <laughs> he welcomes us opens wide the gate and says, come on in. If you are weak and weary and you have come to the end of yourself, you have found a welcome in Jesus. If you just need a little bit of help to finish things off to where you could live your best life and everything's going to work great for you, you just need a little bit of extra, then this kingdom is not open for you. This kingdom is open for those who are weak and weary sinners who come to the end of themselves and submit their lives to the gracious rule and reign of Jesus, to follow him. You know, every Sunday in the lobby before our 9 a.m. worship gathering starts, our Sunday host teams, our worship teams huddle up, and it's just a quick touch point before we start our services. And each Sunday, we remind each other why we do what we do. Why do we open up the doors of this church? And, and this is, we remind each other by reading this to one another. It says this, to all who mourn and long for comfort, 
to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus. He's the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. That's incredible news. And that's why we open up the doors every single Sunday. It's not to pat you on the back and tell you what a great job you're doing. It's to open up the doors and have a welcome from Jesus. He's the friend of sinners. He's the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. We have a king, listen to me, who is a saving king, a restoring king, a redeeming king. And he doesn't chastise or beat you when you come to him. He is a gentle savior who loves you. And all he requires, all he requires is childlike faith. To take him at his word, that he is who he said he is, and he's done what he said he's going to do for you. That's the two responses. And I want to urge you to take the latter. Submit to him as your king. Two responses. You can reject him as your king. Number two, you can submit to him as king. And finally, two realities. And I'm going to go quickly here, okay? A couple of applications that I want to submit to you this morning. Number one, Jesus, and we're going to see this in the Gospel of Mark over and over. Jesus was attractive and selectively offensive. And as disciples of Jesus who make disciples, we should too. Okay? Jesus was attractive and selectively offensive. And as disciples of Jesus who make disciples, we should be too. So attractive and selectively offensive. I want to give credit here to Pastor Tim Keller for helping clarify this uh, this week. I thought it was such a compelling and profound statement as I was studying through Mark chapter 6. And this is what I want you to see. What, What do I mean by attractive and selectively offensive? Well, if you look back in Mark chapter 6, in verse 2, it says, On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, Jesus had all authority just to walk up a town center on day one and put everybody on blast. Did he not? This is Jesus, right? He, you, you're created by him, sustained by him. I'm going to show up when I want to show up and tell you what I'm going to tell you. That's the authority. He had the authority to do that. But what Jesus did was, it says, on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And I don't want to draw too much into that, but I want you to, I want you to see that he, he did what was customary, not to bro- provide unnecessary offense to the people who were listening to him. And so you see two words. In verse 2, many who heard him were astonished. There it is. They were attracted. They saw things that they were attracted to him. And secondly, they took offense to him. He was attractive and selectively offensive. Now, Jesus does this perfect. Does he not? He does this perfect. He's so attractive and yet so offensive. And can I tell you something? We do this imperfectly as followers of Jesus. We do this imperfectly. Now, some of you are really, really good at being offensive, okay? You've got that thing nailed down. Like, you have absolutely perfected being offensive. And others of us really want everyone to like us. We really are trying really hard to put forth the attractiveness of Jesus. But listen to me. If we're going to effectively make disciples of all nations, beginning in greater Washington, D.C., which is our mission statement, 
then we need to, we need to grow in this. We, we need to become more like Jesus in this. And for those of you who, who are just offensive all the time, you need some brothers and sisters in your life to look at you and say, hey, listen, Jesus is, is, is attractive in some really powerful ways. And for those of us like myself, when I'm talking to my neighbors or I'm talking with somebody in Loudon and I'm presenting Jesus, I'm, I'm tempted to remove the offense of Jesus because I want so bad for them to like Jesus, to follow Jesus. But listen, Jesus was both attractive and offensive. And as disciples of Jesus who make disciples, we should too. We need to grow in this church. We tend to lean one way or the other, and we need to grow in this. And I'm convinced, listen, the way we grow in this is through gospel community, through relationship. It doesn't happen in a room like this where hundreds of people are sitting here listening to one person. It happens in a living room. It happens life to life where some brothers and sisters in Christ can look at you and be like, you're being unnecessarily offensive. You need to stop. It's not adorning the gospel of Jesus. Or, hey, I'm going to pray for the courage that you don't just put out the attractiveness of Jesus. You also put out the offense of Jesus. You also put out the offense of Jesus. So Jesus is both attractive and offensive. And as disciples of Jesus who make disciples, we should be too. Second reality. And this is where I'm going to end today. Jesus is not always the king we want. But he's always the king we need. Jesus is not always the king we want. In Nazareth, Jesus was not the king they wanted. The small town of Nazareth looked at Jesus and they said, that's not who we want to be king. We're waiting on somebody to come down and beat Romans down. We want someone who's going to come in and, and bring back the glory of Israel and humiliate our enemies. And they rejected Jesus because he was not the king they wanted. And in our lives, you will be tempted this week to reject Jesus because he's not going to be the king that you want. We want someone who's going to help us feel good about ourselves. We want someone who's going to assist us in achieving and our ambitions and our dreams. We want someone who is going to get us to heaven safely but not make too many demands on our lives here. This is the Jesus that you want, but it's not the Jesus you need. The Jesus you need is the one who's going to sit there and look you in the eye and call sin, sin. It's going to lovingly confront you in your sin, in areas, in relationships, and circumstances where you're not following him as king of your life. The, G, the king that you need is one that's going to look at you in the eye and call sin, sin, and not just stay there, but the kind of a king who's going to love you enough to pay for those sins in full, to pay for those sins in full at great cost of himself so that you can be restored and redeemed and have a forever home in the kingdom of God. That's the king you need. That's the king you need. Jesus is not always the king we want. But I assure you, every moment you live this week, he will be the king you need. One historian said this in closing, I'll leave it here. He said, what is beyond dispute is that in the ministry of two or three years of Naz Jesus of Nazareth, he attracted and infuriated his contemporaries. He mesmerized and alienated the ancient world. And he unleashed a movement that has done the same ever since and thus changed the course of history forever.
when you look to Jesus of Nazareth, are you attracted or infuriated? Are you mesmerized or alienated? Have you rejected him or even remade him? Or have you submitted your life to him as king? Every area, every area you will follow him in his gracious rule and reign over your life. Will you pray with me? I'm going to lead us in a time of response, and we're going to sing a song. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, but I want to just give a few moments for you right there in the stillness of this moment to ask some very important questions in your life. Students, please don't miss this moment. question is this. Have you rejected Jesus of Nazareth as your king? Have you remade him into something that fits well into your life? Or have you submitted everything to him and fallen him as king of your life? I assure you, no matter what stage of life you're in this week, there will be something well up within you that doesn't want Jesus to be king. And I can also assure you, as empty as the grave of Jesus is, he is the king you truly need. Would you just sit and just pray and consider what is God calling you to right now? Maybe right now he's calling you to submit your life to Jesus. To lay down your arms of rebellion against the King of Kings and to follow him.